Hello and welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of Balloons2Drones.com, where we explore the development of military air power from the earliest days of flight until today. I'm your host, Mike Hankins. And I am your host, Brian Lastly. Well, Brian, this year is the 30th anniversary of the first women to fly in combat missions for the United States. Uh, there's actually a really cool article about this in Air and Space Quarterly in the winter 2023 issue and on their website if people are not familiar with that story. Um, Who wrote that article? Uh, I might have <laughs> played a part in writing most of that article. Um, but it's really interesting. Uh, and I thought, you know, 30 years uh, of women in combat, it's a good time to look back at these earlier days of women in the military, uh, in military aviation specifically. And one of the most famous examples of that is, of course, the WASP in World War II. So to talk about this with us today, we're joined by Sarah Perry Myers, Assistant Professor of History at Messiah University and author of Earning Their Wings, The Wasps of World War II and the Fight for Veteran Recognition from University of North Carolina Press. Sarah, thanks for being here. Thank you both for having me. It's good to be here. Absolutely our pleasure. Well, let's dive right into this and talk about how you got into this project in the first place. Why write a book about the WASP right now? Yeah, so I was first interested in the WASP when I was honestly just Google searching for a research topic. And this was uh, during my undergrad, actually. And I like, you know, found them and was like, okay, I'm going to do this for my senior project. There was this website where you could email a WASP. And I thought that was so cool that you could connect with an actual veteran. And so I like emailed some of them. And then fast forward to the decision to go to grad school. And I was deciding about like, okay, what am I going to write my master's thesis on? And so for my master's thesis, I explored the WASP. And then I just realized there was so much more to say that I was going to do it for my dissertation. And when I say that, I think that they're a really interesting set of women because they're the only ones that didn't get access to military benefits after World War II. And then on the other hand, they like fight for veteran status later and, you know, it's not just World War II era, it's like the 60s and 70s that their story like continues. And so I just found them fascinating for those reasons and decided to like pursue researching them. And we, we're, we're very glad you did. Now, you know, the Wasp, they don't appear out of nowhere, right? They come out of some already pre-existing organizations uh, who, lack of a better term, already get less press than, than the WASPs themselves, right? So for those who aren't familiar with the origin story, the the WASPs, the Women's Auxiliary Ferrying Squadron run by Nancy Harkness Love, and the WFTD, the Women's Ferry Flying Training Detachment run by Jackie Cochran. So how do these organizations uh, relate to the WASP and kind of what were their individual roles? Yeah, so both organizations were formed, like you said, by two women pilots who were pretty well established in their like careers during the 1940s. And so both of these women were put in charge of programs that separately had different like focus, but who were both serving and supporting the U.S. Army Air Force, as it was known at the time. And so in September 1942, both programs start. The Women's Auxiliary Ferrying Squadron, the WAFs, they are doing um, primarily ferrying work for, you know, flying planes from factories to bases or flying planes from base to base. And what they're 
their kind of like background is, is that there are only 28 of them and they're women with a very advanced like flying record. So some of them had like thousands of flying hours. And so they're very well like established in their careers in, you know, with flying, with regards to flying. And they're also unique in that way because not that many women had the opportunity to do that. And then the WFTD with Jackie Cochran is a program designed for women who have at first a minimum of 200 hours of flying out, you know, flying hours and experience. But then later that number gets like lowered when you think about the WASP. Um, but the WFTD's purpose was to take women with fewer flying hours, train them in military training, and then start to assign them at bases around the country in various roles and assignments, um, varying, yes, but also other roles. And so when the programs both prove like really successful, that's when General Arnold decides to merge these two programs in 1943 in July and make the what becomes known as the WASP program. So sometimes I kind of just broadly use the term WASP to reference women in World War II, but yes, came from two distinct programs and merged into one to have the purpose of filling various roles like across the country. So there's a lot of limitations put on these women, right? In different roles. Uh, a lot of them, you know, have to do with what types of flights they're allowed to do or not do, uh, where they can or can't fly, you know, et cetera. So tell us a little bit about that. What specifically are the WASP women doing? Uh, what are the limitations on what they're allowed to do? And why were all these limitations there in the first place? Sure. So just like, you know, the last several decades and even sometimes still today, there are debates about women serving in combat. And so during the war, uh, that was very much the case. And so the United States decided to not let women serve in combat. So what that means if you're um, going through military pilot training is that you don't learn um, aerial maneuvers that you would use in combat and things like that. So you aren't learning about combat during ground school or practicing um, in flight school. And so the WASP are exempt, you know, from that. Beyond that, they have the same training as men. And so when they're serving in these various assignments across the country, um, the decision is made to keep them in primarily the continental United States, rather than even doing, you know, because there's women with the British Air Transport Auxiliary that are ferrying planes over in Europe. Um, but the decision is made not to even allow women who are in the WASP to fly from the US or Canada overseas. So they're just going to be in the continental like United States. There are a few exceptions to that where women do make a couple trips to Canada and Puerto Rico and Cuba. But beyond that, just here at home. And a part of that was because of their sex, because the decision was like, we need to keep them in a, in roles that we think will kind of appease the American public who is concerned about gender roles changing too much. And particularly for the WASP program, these women aren't doing anything considered to be quote unquote traditional for women. And so they decide, the you know Army Air Force decides like we're gonna keep them in these roles. In assignments, they do a lot of what men do. There are even some women, there's like one WASP who's assigned to jet pilot um, testing. And so they're serving in all the different types of roles on the home front that aren't related to combat. Um, but it's, you know, these other limitations on the home front that are placed on them. You know, you, you have a lot of interesting material, and I think it's fairly common to talk about 
motivation for joining the service. And you see this in a lot of memoirs from World War II. You know, I joined uh, I joined for the guy next to me or I joined because I wanted to fly. Um, and one of the things that jumped out at me and that kept coming up was was the motivations of these women. I mean, one wanting to avenge the deaths of others in the war. So can you expand on that and talk about what motivated these women? Yeah, so women are, I'm always fascinated, like you are with memoirs and thinking about what motivates someone to serve. And the women's motivations, like echo men's motivations for war, even beyond World War II, when you think about like, ideas of patriotism or, you know, a sense of nationalism, et cetera. So for the WASP, they are very much flying for the same wide variety of reasons. So one is patriotism. So they'll reference the Pearl Harbor and the attack on Pearl Harbor. And that's why I decided to join to fly for my country. Or you have women who literally say, like um, you mentioned, Brian, like avenge. We want to avenge men's deaths overseas. And so they have these literal like conversations in their newsletters about um, how they want to avenge men who have died. And a lot of WASP talk about like, so, you know, these men that I graduated from high school with, they were drafted and enli or enlisted and I want to serve in the same way that they did. And so they see this in from that perspective. But then you also with flying always have the element with pilots of not every single one, right? But a lot of them who want to fly because they love to fly. And to them, there's also that aspect of adventure or excitement related to flight itself. And that very much applies to these women pilots as well. That's really interesting. Um, and one of the things that I was thinking about a lot too when I read this, you know, we're talking about all these women in World War II, and we're almost exclusively talking about white women, of course, as you might imagine. But this is also happening at the same time that the Tuskegee Airmen are starting to be trained and go into combat as well. And the double V campaign for African-Americans, double victory is, is happening. So you talk about this a little bit in the book. So what role do African-American women play in all this? And is there any intersection at all between these kind of two groups of, you know, the the fight to get women uh, into airplanes and the double V campaign, et cetera? Yeah, I love this question. I appreciate that you also brought up that this is prim primarily white women, right? Because I didn't clarify that earlier. So the WASP program and the WFTD and the WAFs decide that these are going to be programs where they're only women who are white or could pass as white. And so that decision is made for similar reasons to not allowing them to fly overseas, but also to kind of just like appease like fears in the American public or perceptions of those. And so that's, um, yeah, the composition of the WASP. So for them in particular, they actually relate to African-American like women's units in other branches of the service. But also when you think about, um, like you said, the Tuskegee Airmen, the stereotypes that are used about black bodies and their abilities to perform in combat, but then also their intellectual abilities. So not just like strength, but thinking about like intelligence and the intelligence it takes to fly these, you know, advanced aircraft, but also the intelligence to fight in combat specifically was discussed about them broadly and widely. But for the WASP, you have 
questions of their intellectual and physical abilities just in a different way, like specific to women. And so there's discussion of like, are women intellectually capable to handle this? Okay, well, once they are, are we sure that they can fly certain aircraft? So even like General Arnold had a, you know, graduating ceremony speech that he made to the WASP where he said, I didn't know if the slip of a young girl could fly, you know, could handle the controls of a B-17. So this discussion of like, we're not sure what they're physically capable of. Um, for women, there was, interestingly to me, this uh, also added dynamic of their like reproductive organs. So this has been true for women when they entered space as well. And this discussion of like, what does it do to a woman's like literal body when they're in like at these high altitudes and will something happen to the reproductive organs or will they be able to handle like the stresses of, you know, whatever situation it is for flight. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you talk about these perceptions around rim, women uh, and black women and black aviators in general. Uh, and I'll go ahead and throw out there that there's a, a, a NFL Films just did a new NFL 360 called The Flyest Ever on the Tuskegee Airmen. So if our listeners want to uh, watch that, it's up on YouTube. It's about an hour long and it's great. Um, now, I, I want to uh, tell you, Sarah, that there is a running joke uh, in all of our podcasts that we can't do uh, a podcast without me somehow shoehorning Walt Disney into the conversation. Uh, and it does not matter what the topic is, but I felt like this was going to be a, a big softball for me uh, with regard to uh, the Wasp. So here's the question. You know, like a lot of other male squadrons, culture and camaraderie play a big role. But one of the biggest rallying points was for the Wasp was their emblem, right? The Disney design uh, Fifanella emblem. So can you talk a little bit about that particular patch? Uh, and then what was the culture of the Wasp like? Was it was it similar to a, a typical male flying squadron? Yeah, I love this question because I love thinking about culture. And also I love that, you know, the Wasp program makes it so easy for you to bring in Walt Disney. So yes, just like other units that served during World War II, you know, some units would write to Walt Disney and ask for him to design one or they'd get permission to have a mascot. Um, in much the same way, the Wasp are adopting, they adopt it as like Fifinella, this Walt Disney cartoon, as trainees. So as they're training together, they're training first at Houston, but mostly in Sweetwater, Texas. It is an all-female trainee like base where they do have male instructors, but everyone else on base is female. And so you have this situation where they're together and going through this intense experience of training, like military training for the first time and making that transition from civilian to, to military and also learning how to fly all of these advanced aircraft. And as they're going through that, they're constantly, you can see in their newsletters what it is that they're trying to do, like what they're trying to develop culturally and how they're trying to build camaraderie. So, for example, like if you look at other men's units across the country, they'll have newsletters in the places like the bases where they were stationed, but sometimes the bases where they trained. And so the WASP are like very much participating in the same culture. They're even doing things like writing songs and changing lyrics to songs like men also did, you know? And so 
in this like context, this uh, Fifi Nella character was actually used in a book by a RAF, like Royal Air Force pilot, during whose name was Rode Dahl, who's also an author. And he wrote this book called The Gremlins. And Fifi Nella is a character who is supposed to be a gremlin. And according to pilot lore, this stretches to Europe and also the U.S., that you know, there are these gremlins who potentially mess with your aircraft. And so you want like good luck. So the gremlins don't like mess with anything. And so the wasp pick Fifinella to be their like mascot in sort of like, it's a playful way, but also in a way that's referencing like luck and ideas that a lot of pilots have about what will bring you luck and success in your like flying assignments. Right. And so and when you think about culture, it's unique because it's like a primarily female base, but then they all have assignments across the country where sometimes they're the only woman on base or there's a very small number of them, you know, on the base or they're ferrying and they're the only one. And so when you think about that, they still are able to maintain like a sense of camaraderie with each other and communication networks. Um, but it's very different than it was when they were trainees. And so the trainees kind of set them up for culture. But then once they're on these predominantly male um, Army Air Force bases, then that does like shift the culture for them. So I thought of myself as somewhat familiar with the Wasp before I went into this book. Um, and there's a lot of stuff that surprised me in here, like stuff I didn't know that was really interesting. Um, and one of the things that I had heard is that, you know, the Wasp are not military members, right? They are civilian employees, which was really important distinction um, at the time and something that they obviously fight against later. Um, I was surprised, though, I did not know um, that a lot of these women had gone to OCS, which I thought was interesting that they were still not able to become military members um, after going through OCS. Um, but for those of our listenership, a lot, a lot of our listeners might know what this means in terms of like if they're veterans. Um, but for those who aren't familiar, um, the fact that the WASP are not members of the military officially, that creates a lot of limitations for them. Can you explain like what the differences are and what they're not able to have access to as a result? Yeah. So during their wartime service, what that means is that you don't have access to benefits when you're injured. So there was, you know, there are lots of stories you can look at for this, but there was one wasp in particular who got an eye infection because she was on a cargo plane, you know, transporting men who had this same eye infection. And so then she got it and she had to use her civilian insurance for that, even though it's this like weird circumstance. And so even when you're like injured in, you know, an accident or whatever, you have to use your civilian insurance for a situation that normally doesn't apply. But then when you think about deaths, so there were 38 WASP who died during the course of the war. Um, they in particular were, they didn't have their families and they didn't have like the benefit of being military in the sense that they technically were not supposed to have military funerals. Um, they were not they were not given like compensation in any way, those typical benefits that families get for funeral expenses and things like that. And so in some cases, Jackie Cochran used her like personal funds to pay to have these, uh, some of the current like wasp escort the body home of the wasp who had died and things like that. You do see instances where local communities will have a military funeral, even though that's technically not what they're supposed to have access to. But for the most part, they, they don't have that. And so, 
you know, if you think about things, just even like displaying a gold star in the window culturally, you know, they don't have access to any of these typical um, practices. And so it's a death in the family that is unique in that way. But when you talk about the post-war period, they don't have access to the GI Bill that all these other male and female veterans do have access to. And so that means you don't get benefits with education or loan rates, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it's amazing. And I think the easy button would be to say, well, there were a lot of there were a lot of men who supported the WASP. And that is true. Uh, but many did not. And it seems like many of these women, and I think this is an important part of the conversation here, they experience various levels of discrimination. Uh, in some cases, up to the point of men sabotaging aircraft, which is literally criminal. So can you talk a little bit about the resistance uh, to women in these aviation roles? Yeah, so the WASP found that within training and then also in their assignments that they faced a, a range of reactions from the men that were their instructors or the men that they were serving with. And so the large overarching theme is that the women felt like they had to prove themselves very similarly to how the Tuskegee Airmen talk about proving themselves or how black women in these different roles. And so they feel like they need to be the best possible so that there's no excuse to say, oh, well, we shouldn't have women in this particular role because of whatever, right? And so they feel this need or this pressure to perform really well. And that is very relevant like today too, right? And so thinking about that, and then also thinking about the fact that there is, you know, there's all these stories in, you know, these sources that I was looking at, or even in oral history interviews, where they will talk about intimidation by the men that they're serving with, and the different like forms that that takes. And even things like sabotage to their aircraft. And Sometimes that it was very difficult for me to track down these like sabotage incidences because most of them were were covered up in some way by Jackie Cochran intentionally because she didn't want negative media press for the program. But it was difficult for me, even in the cases that exist, to figure out, like, was this a, a German sympathizer that was leading to a, a sabotage incident or was this hostility to women serving? And obviously we can't get at everything that we want to in the historical record. And so... I don't have a definitive answer, but regardless, there is very clearly like over discrimination that they face from in multiple contexts during the war. And while some men did readily accept them, it the record seems to be that the majority did not. Now, you mentioned earlier that this is not just a World War II story, right? This goes much further up into the 60s and 70s when these women are kind of making this effort to get recognition for their service, um, not to give too much of a spoiler to the book, but yeah, do tell us about the rest of this story. Like what happens later um, when they're trying to get veteran status and why and how did that all come about? Yeah, this is one of my favorite parts of their story, actually, because it's a fascinating like process thinking about, okay, if you're not a veteran, but you want veteran status, what do you, what do you do? And for the WASP, they were like, entirely devastated by the program ending in December 1944. And then women, you know, don't have the opportunity to fly military aircraft again until 1973. And so you have this large, like, even gap in U.S. history with access to careers. But thinking about the WASP, they 
talked at, you know, they have annual reunions like other veterans groups do where they meet and reminisce and talk about the war. And even in these early reunions in like 1945, 1946, they are talking about the fact that like, for example, the 38 women who died never got the recognition that they thought they should, or or some were just concerned about like the families in particular. But then later the conversation like shifts to discussing like it would be really great if we had access to those benefits, and partially because we would appreciate the like recognition that women have served in these roles before. Um, a part of that, some of the WASP I talked to mentioned the fact that in 1973, when women are, you know, given this opportunity again to fly military aircraft, that a lot of newspaper coverage said it was a first. And they were honestly just disrupted by the fact that, you know, we served in, you know, three decades ago, don't forget about us. But then also some of them were honestly just having conversations about like, I would love when I die to be, you know, interned at Arlington or have these other um, opportunities for benefits for my family. And so, they start to, they organize themselves just, you know, sometimes when I talk to people about this, I'm like, what's interesting about it is, you know, this is a world where you're writing letters still and trying to track people down, like, you know, old school methods. And so they're, they've got this extensive network that they've developed for themselves, but there's still a lot of WASP who haven't been attending reunions that they're trying to reach out to. And so they get the support of two influential men in the world of politics and the military to then help like propel their movement like forward in their organization. And, you know, you can read more details about this, but Barry Goldwater was, you know, one of them. And then the other was Hap Arnold's like son, um, Colonel Bruce Arnold, who's like helping both, you know, different spaces, but helping the WASP politically organize themselves. And what was fascinating about the debates around their organization was just that there were men who served alongside them, like Barry Goldwater during World War II, who said, oh yes, they were clearly military because they were issued military uniforms, honorable discharge certificates, you know, we were on the same assignments. But then at the same time, there are other veterans who are talking about this in the context of, well, sure, you know, maybe those things are true, but, if we open up basically Pandora's box and give this, you know, military status to one group, then who knows who's going to come and ask for military status. And so trying to sort of make it this like catch all or something that they're worried about happening. And so my favorite part was when I'm like, you know, reading congressional testimony and they're literally reading from the U.S. code and they're like, the definition of a veteran is, and I'm like, literally what you're reading out loud fits the WASP. So you're not like doing yourself a service here by reading the official definition. And so I just was fascinated by who decided to kind of be like a stakeholder of the term veteran and who, you know, was resistant to it. And then also at the same time, what national and local organizations supported the WASP because this was very obvious to them that if you have dog tags and an honorable discharge certificate, well, then you were military. So, you know, looking back, and it's funny, some something you just said, I, I, I feel like we have this argument today. Um, and so there, there continue to be ongoing debates about who is or who isn't allowed to serve in the U.S. military and, and what they are, what they are not allowed to do. Uh, in the military. So in light of that, 
what do you think is the legacy of the Wasp? What should we take from their story in 2024? Yes, the thing that I would love for us to take, especially thinking when you think about uh, the media, like I'm saying media broadly, but just the ways that journalists interact with women in the military and the questions that they ask them versus the questions that they ask male um, members of the military or male veterans are typically following a trend that, you know, existed during World War II. So I would love it if we talk to women as though they were professionals instead of trying to bring in their appearances or their personal lives into the conversation. Um, because just as though women in World War II complained about this happening, it's still like happening today. But also I think just thinking about the discussions that we have about who is fit for what types of service, the the conversations or or even literally like the design of military uniforms or the design of cockpits, the design of military equipment is often around like an average male like body, even though there are, you know, female service members in these same roles. And so I would, that is something that is like a conversation that, you know, like Air Force is having now, et cetera, and that I would love to see happen. And even thinking about veterans and like, what do we like owe our veterans and thinking about you know, because I got asked by a journalist once, like, oh, hey, name, you know, I don't know, like two or three female veterans that like all Americans would be able to identify. And I was honestly stumped for a second because I could name veterans myself. But I said, I'm struggling to find names that I think that, you know, the American public would be able to easily just quickly say, hey, yeah, here are three names for you. I said you could they could do that for male veterans, but not for women. And so there's this discussion of how female veterans often feel like invisible with their service even now. And I think that the WASP are very much a part of that story as well, that I would love to see a change shift. Well, for our listeners who want to see what is visible about all these women and dive into it a little bit more, the book again is Earning Their Wings, The Wasps of World War II and the Fight for Veteran Recognition. That's University of North Carolina Press. Uh, Sarah, can we find more of you online anywhere? Yeah, Twitter is a great place because it's like an easy way to like message me and then we can have a conversation. But it's Dr. Like Dr. Sarah with an H, Myers, M-Y-E-R-S. All right, Brian, where are you at these days? Uh, I don't know. I'm still struggling with the the sentence that Sarah just said. Twitter is a, a great place. Um, I I am still I'm still there. I'm at I'm at Twitter. I'm at Blue Sky, uh, and you can also find me at BrianLastly.com. Well, I am at nwhankins.com. All of us are online at balloons2drones.com. Our music was created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which you can find on Facebook at digitalfishmedia.org. And please feel free to send us an email at balloons2drones.com slash contact, where you can also submit articles for publication if you'd like. And thank you all, and we will see you next time.